Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to Thursday afternoon's Late Lunch on LMFM Radio. Great to have you with us on the show. Coming up this afternoon, later on, we're going soupy loopy on Late Lunch. Yes, we are, with Tara Walker as she rustles up a beautiful soup in a new series with us. Well, for the birds too. Sure, nearly always for the birds in Late Lunch. Niall Hatch is here. It's bird nesting season and he'll be giving us hints and tips on how we can help our feathered friends. And I'm looking forward to my chat with compulsive gambler Pat Sheedy. All coming up this afternoon on Late Lunch, 086. 1800 658 by WhatsApp or text if you want to get in touch with us on the show. Anyway, unless you're in another planet, you will have heard the news over the last couple of days. Firstly, the closure of MS in Drogheda followed swiftly the following day by the announcement that the only major hotel in the heart of town, the D Hotel, will no longer be accommodating tourists to the area. There's been a lot of debate about it. Michael had uh, quite a bit on it on his show this morning, and we're taking it up on late lunch today with a man who I honestly feel can give us a very balanced view of what happened. He's the CEO of NGO Development Perspectives. He's always a good friend to us on Late Lunch. He's back in the studio with me today. Bobby McCormick, thank you for joining me. Delighted to be here, Jerry. Thank you. Now, you were a Drogheda man like myself, born and reared uh, in the town. And uh, as I said, you have a great perspective beyond these shores, uh, from the town, from the country, out abroad, with all the work you've done over the years in many other countries. And you're well familiar with people who are fleeing conflict and strife and war in other nations. And should we see now Ukraine, what's happening in the Middle East, uh, elsewhere. What's your initial reaction to the news about the hotel? I mean, it's, there's lots of reactions, to be honest. I'm, I'm worried in one sense. Um, I'm, I'm also kind of afraid in another in terms of what the reaction could be over the next couple of weeks. Um, and on another level, I suppose I'm, I'm not surprised at all because the neglect of Drogheda has been going on for decades. And this is just, I think, another step, another, another kind of illustration of something that's far deeper than anything got to do with the announcement about the D Hotel. I should say, though, as well, I, I do think that the issue around housing the international protection applicants is something we also need to talk about, which I, I think is really important. The neglect we'll come back to in a moment, but the, the manner in which this happened, in other words, there didn't seem to be any consultation with anybody on the ground. This uh, came, seemed to come from wide left and no one anticipated. And a, a deal was done with the owners of the hotel by government at, at national level. Mm. Um, you don't blame the people who own the hotel. If, you know, they look at their figures, their business people. You know, they, they look at what the, how the hotel is traded and they look at what they can get guaranteed from government to convert it into different accommodation. 
Look, there's different incentives for different stakeholders in this. I think that the communication between central government and local government, not just in Drogheda, but on communities all across the country, has been really poor. And each time we'll hear politicians say, yes, communication should be better, but then doesn't get better. In in relation to the point about the ownership, I think it's an interesting one. I do think part of the issue that's affecting Drogheda and communities across the country is corporate and private greed. I'm not saying in this case that that's uh, the reason behind it. But what I am saying is that I do think that local authorities need to have a, a better understanding and idea of what's happening in communities because those businesses, in this case the D Hotel, served an important function to the community more generally. So I don't think that individuals should always have the right to make whatever decision is economically best for them. And and that goes back to, say, for instance, issues of dereliction, that we look at communities right across the country and there is huge dereliction. There's empty buildings everywhere. If you walk across narrow West Street, West Street today, you see so many buildings that are just not being used. And, and oftentimes that is wealthy individuals who are hoarding buildings and and who then local authorities either don't wish to challenge or don't have the appetite to challenge. And I think simply that isn't good enough anymore. Coming back to the hotel specifically uh, and the owners, as I said, you really can't blame people, you know, if they look at an economic model and the the new reality is far more beneficial to them. And I understand what Mm. you're saying about uh, greed as well, and that can play a part for sure. Um, when, When you think about this, you know, the hotel being such a, a fulcrum, should I say, of the town where it is, essential in terms of the policy that's been pursued by many people and developed to develop Drada as the gateway to the Boyne Valley. Tourism, I'm talking about, visitors. And suddenly you take that out of the equation. You know, this is a thing I mentioned on the show before, Bobby. No, I, I didn't know anything about this last year to say that this... The money that government put up to acquire accommodation is is fine and people benefit from it. But when there's a key place like the D Hotel, just one example, and there have been in other places as well, that's so essential as to you, what you just said a moment ago, to the wider community, the economy, etc. Nobody consider that. I think this goes to, I suppose, the heart of the problem. There's a real, it seems, a, a knowledge and understanding deficit of, of what development is and how to bring development about for communities. And and this, again, is another good example. The, the branding of the Boyne Valley is fantastic. The history of the Boyne Valley is fantastic. We should have far more people staying in bed nights in, in this area, in Drogheda. But let's face it, the hotel or not, people are not. The tourists that are entering to Newgrange every day, the majority of them are going back to Dublin on a daily basis. The question needs to be asked, why? We've had a deficit, a very low number of affordable bed nights in Drogheda for decades. This isn't anything got to do with the shutting of the D Hotel. And let me give you one example. In development perspectives, we house residential training courses for 25 people at a time on maybe 10 different occasions out, you know, throughout the year. All of our staff are full time in development perspectives based in Drogheda. We want to see an economically thriving Drogheda. We can't house any of those training courses in Drogheda because there is no affordability in terms of accommodation. There is no, even before the D closed in terms of tourism, there is no place to have these things. Now that is a complete failure politically, but it's also a complete failure from a development point of view because we know that people spending nights in Drogheda will invest their money through eating in the town, through visiting things, 
things through restaurants and so on and so forth and that just hasn't happened but that's nothing new that's nothing got to do with the D Hotel that's happening for decades Your headquarters is on the banks of the Vine down near the port there's a ship there called the Hebel Sand and if I hear any more about this and what's been done about it I'll break up the shop because it's all hot air to be honest with you just hot air that's all it is Donaghy's Mill, one of the finest buildings in the country, left and left and left. Who owns it? We don't know. It's left there. It goes into dereliction. It's burned to the ground. The structure is probably not usable now. I only cite those as two examples of neglect. Completely. It's a physical neglect that we can see. And there's an undercurrent that causes it. And just to to talk briefly about that, like Drogheda is one of the most deprived areas of the country in terms of the public deprivation index. We have huge, you know, problems with inequality and poverty. We know that that's the case. That that led to, in many cases, the feud that we saw in Drogheda. These are symptoms of things that we know about. And the neglect that Dunhees Mill illustrates, the neglect that, you know, the Hebel Sand illustrates, goes to the core of the problem is that unless we're really interested in tackling these root causes like inequality like a lack of imagination politically a lack of action on the local authorities point of view then the decision that's taken about the D Hotel which I have to say on another perspective um, I'm somewhat much more sympathetic about in terms of what it's being used for but that the people who do have an issue with it who I agree with to a large extent around tourism and the economic uh, kind of failure that we're seeing in this area, these things are going to get worse, not better. So the MS closure is just another symptom of that. But even if we go a little bit further back, Jerry, the out-of-town shopping centres, we knew from a policy and practice point of view that building these things was going to be part of the destruction of the town centre. But we built a few of them, not just one of them. And we know from evidence right across Europe that was a huge mistake. And the local authorities have a lot to answer for on both of those decisions. But we continue to make really silly mistakes that evidence doesn't back up. Who is responsible? I think there's a collective and and I think it's important that we begin to name them, not individually, but there's a complete political failure at national and local level in relation to Drogheda. It's not good enough for local councillors to point the finger at central government, nor is it good enough for central government to point the finger at local authority. Both of them are partially to blame. But there's also a kind of a societal issue in Drogheda with lots of entities, stakeholders, businesses, trade unions, civil society that were working a little bit in silos. And I think we need to really look at the root causes. And again, to go back to the evidence, you know, if we look at communities around around Ireland, Drogheda is not faring well. Look at the what's happening in, say, Hoth as an example, or Skerries. You know, we don't have to go far to see a community that doesn't have the issues that Drogheda has and ask ourselves why. Like, why is it that a community a few kilometres away does not have the neglect that Drogheda has? I, I think we really need to kind of remove our head from the sand and begin to look at what's really happening here. And uh, what's really happening here is a long-term neglect, a long-term absence abdication of duty and a long-term lack of knowledge and understanding. And on top of that, the largest town in Ireland, growing exponentially, pushing out now a new town on the north side as well. More people coming to live here. Thousands and thousands. And yet the place and the infrastructure and all you mentioned there 
is in rack and ruin. And and again, these these kind of like uh, movements of people is further symptom of what's uh, going badly wrong. If you look at the amount of people that are commuting from Drogheda every day, they're they're not spending their their time in in communities in Drogheda. It's kind of like becoming a sleeper town. It's it's leaving in the morning. It's coming back late at night. And and even if we could shift a small percentage of that, then we wouldn't even be talking about the D Hotel because there's thousands of people leaving Drogheda every day to work in other parts of the country. And and they've been in turn moved out because of financial pressures in the likes of Dublin. We've got a capital city, city that's being hollowed out because people can't afford to live there anymore. That is wrong from a planning point of view, from a development point of view, and more importantly, from a political point of view. And our politicians can change this. There's no point in crying about it once decisions have been made. They could have, should have done far more, far sooner. If you want to comment, 086-1800-658 by WhatsApp or text, you can get in touch with us on the show. Um, I, I honestly don't know what to say because I, I do want to say this, that I, like yourself, with the sympathy you have, I have huge sympathy for people who have to flee their own countries because of war, of conflict, of persecution, uh, lack of basic human rights. And we understand that. In Ireland, we've done a lot in this country. Uh, to help and we continue to do so and it's no reflection on those people who who, you know are just coming in terror to a new country they're not familiar with at all and I would hate to see this become you know uh, a them and us issue Mm. you know what I mean Absolutely unfortunately it will and it's going to happen in the next couple of days because there are people really storing this up and, and using it for, sadly, political gain. Um, and there are interests that have nothing got to do with Drogheda. We'll see plenty of people in the next few days that probably they've come to Drogheda for the first time, maybe even from other jurisdictions that have very different interests and they'll scapegoat a group of people who had had a horrific experience and they'll blame and they'll point fingers. And of course, it won't be everybody. There will be many people with lots of, you know, valid concerns. But but let's, let's, as I say, look at the root causes of it rather than blaming the surface level, which is what the D Hotel is now doing in the next few months or weeks. Um, and, and I would be worried about how the debate will will give rise to lots of frustrations with groups of people that will utter them. They will, I think, suffer uh, unnecessarily from people believing that international protection applicants are the problem here. It's it's not the issue at all. It's not the problem. However, I do have sympathy with the the people who might believe that, you know, tourism will be badly affected and economic development will be affected. That's, That's for sure. Jerry, I was listening to uh, LMFM this morning reading the D Hotel and I heard a spokesperson for the, the hotel saying that weddings would be safe as the function room would still be there. But my question is, so you have your reception there, but where do the people stay as all the rooms are taken? And that's a very valid point as well, for sure. This is blown up into a storm now and will be a storm for the next, as you said, number of days. And there's a worry around that, a real worry mm. uh, that'll be hijacked for the wrong reasons. Will this, you know, you talking here, Michael did an extensive this morning here on the show, it's in the national papers, whatever, there'll be lots of yap about this for the next few days and then the storm dies down and Drogheda's forgotten about again. I think part of the problem at the moment is the timing with the, the local elections because I think that too many people will see it as a possibility of of driving certain messages that, that I think is really problematic. 
there's lots of good reason for us in Drogheda to, to look at what can be done and what can be done isn't rocket science. We can really shift this around. We can make Drogheda into the flourishing, thriving place that it deserves to be as the, the gateway to the Boyne Valley. But quite honestly, we need to really shift our thinking, shift our mindset, because what we've done for the last few decades is just plainly not working. Jack makes an interesting point. I could, I absolutely agree fully with your speaker and all he says, Jerry. The neglect of the town has been shocking. We've lost this hotel, uh, the West Court Hotel, are housing people as well, as are the former churches of the Franciscan and St. Dominic's as well. We've done a lot, in other words, somebody saying that we're doing a lot. Yeah, it's an interesting one when you look at nationally. So Ireland is a very wealthy country that, you know, prides itself on doing its fair share. When you look at the amount of international protection applicants, your listeners might be surprised to know it's actually on the lower end of things as an average. Uh, that doesn't mean, of course, it's bad. It just means that, you know, we're not taking in as many people as you know, some voices will say, you know, but it is increasing and it's increasing gradually. The Irish Human Rights and Equality Commission took the government to court on a number of occasions and found the court found in favour of the Internet of the, the Human Rights and Equality Commission that Ireland has a right. If you're going to listen to those um, applications, you have to house those people. And that when those cases are properly adjudicated on, then you either give them right to stay or move them on. That process is taking far too long and it's been taken far too long for decades. Again, this isn't new. This is something that has been a failure for a long, long time. I think any of the international protection applicants that we work with are eager too to get settled into a community and eager too to get their case settled. They don't want to be in limbo. They don't want to find out eight years, nine years, ten years after their application. Will we? Won't we? Can we stay? It's it's a really kind of a problematic process that really needs to be reviewed. The government, the current government, had on its agenda as part of its programme to review it and do away with it. I don't think that's going to happen before the next dial sits. Mm, it's a, it's a valid point you make, and 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 we have to say again. I want to say this to all the new Irish who've come here over the last couple of decades. The contribution they make to Irish society, what they've brought to us, and you know you only see it. I say it again in the sporting world, how much they're making us proud to be Irish, and they're so proud to be Irish as well. Absolutely. I mean, just as a as little aside, my dad is is a resident was of a long time of Yellow Batter. He's now in Gorenstown Wood Nursing Home. He's not well with dementia. And I've yet to meet any of the staff that are dealing with him and caring for him and, and doing a huge amount that are from Ireland. They're, they're all from all over the world. Uh, I thank them on behalf of my dad. My dad is, as I said, a Drogheda resident. You know, he got, has got great care through the healthcare system and nearly all of the doctors, the nurses, the carers, the people that we rely on to look after our children, look after our elderly, you know. They're, they're not always from Drogheda, nor do they need to be. It doesn't mean that yes. they're more special or less special. But I do think we need to recognise, as you say, the contribution people make and also not just economically. Yes, there is a cost to this economically, but people are more than that. You know, people, there's a value to people that has nothing got to do with budget sheets and expra- Excel documents. Absolutely, absolutely. Richard's been on there to say he likes the retail parks. He thinks they provide jobs and a, a lot of choice as well in terms of businesses. I think the problem 
Richard with the retail barracks are. They're all the same in every town and, and the same businesses are multiplied and I, I don't know whether there's enough to sustain them all. J- just on that though, Jerry, and the point is an interesting one. For every job that's created in those retail park, 1.5 jobs is displaced locally and that's that's a kind of like a really well-known stat that you, you take away from the local economy when you've got lots of companies that are taking their profits outside of the country. Most of those retail park members they don't recycle the money locally. And what we've seen in Drogheda as one example, which is replicated all over the country, the death knell of our communities in the local sense has meant that retail parks essentially have thrived. Bobby, it's been great having you with us on the show today. A balanced, uh, calm view, as I say always, and a great perspective uh, from both sides. Thank you indeed. And just Richard said there, he thinks that uh, the Lawrence Centre was a mistake. Too many centres. We have a lot of centres around the town, for sure. More on this and on here on LMFM Radio, I'm sure with Michael, in the morning uh, for the moment. And again, Bobby, uh, thank you very much for dropping into us today. Delighted to be here. Bobby McCormick, CEO of Development Perspectives. You're with Late Lunch on LMFM. FM radio and for the day that's in it our Louise came up with this just before we came down to sit into studio today. We think this song is uh, uh, very apt today Jim McArdle, Donald Black Eilish Quinn and Wally Murphy yes there's a lot of blinding going on down the mash today. Alright boys Alright Mike <laughs> two, two. Blinding down the mash They're hanging round the block in Harman's Gardens Much blinding down the mash The boys they are on telling dirty yardens Now Matty Sagan said he'll have to sack just one or two Now he's after sacking six and that will never do Everyone that he has sacked they're signing on the brew So much blinding down the mash now, I've noticed that, I don't know whether you have too, the birds are singing again in the mornings. Yes, they are indeed. And there's a reason for it, for sure. Well, the man that knows all about our feathered friends is on the line from Bird Watch Ireland, our good friend, Niall Hatch. Afternoon, Niall. Good afternoon. Thank you for joining me on the show. You know, they weren't singing, and I noticed it the past couple of weeks, Niall in particular, in the mornings, they're back, the chorus again. Explain that, would you, to listeners? I will, absolutely. I've noticed exactly the same thing, and I have to say, it really puts a spring in my step in the mornings when I do hear that. It's a lovely way to wake up, because we're getting into the dawn chorus period. And the reason for that is that, as people have noticed, the daylight every day is getting longer. Um, as we go on now into the springtime, there's, there's more daylight each day. This triggers hormones in the birds that get into breeding mode, and therefore they start singing. Because when the birds are singing, what they're doing is they're trying to claim and defend a territory and to attract a mate. So it's all based around breeding behaviour and breeding activity. And now that uh, now that we're coming into the springtime and we have uh, the longer days, this is what triggers it. So pretty soon, many of these birds will be nesting. Some will have already started nesting. I was watching a magpie just yesterday building a nest uh, near my own house uh, in Wicklow, and um, so we will see more. More of this activity, and we can expect this bird song to get louder and more intense right through up to kind of peaks around early May. Yeah, good to hear it. It really is. It, it, it tells you that springtime is certainly on the way. So they are. Some of them are starting to nest already. What do you say to listeners if you have, say, a tree to trim or a hedge to cut back? Get that done at ASAP. 
Well, yes. So, so it, it, hedges is actually prohibited in most cases for hedges to cut between the first of March and the thirty first of August. Yes. So we're getting close to the end of the permitted period of hedge cutting. However, having said that, if birds are already nesting in the hedges, um, you should leave them alone as well because mm. it, separately, it's, it's against the law to, to interfere or disturb with or in any way damage or um, a bird's nest when, when it's active, so it has eggs or chicks in it. Uh, so, um, so yes, if, if if you have to cut the hedges, do it as soon as you possibly can. But if you can leave it till the autumn, please leave it till the autumn because right now, there's, you know, those those hedges are supporting lots of insects, there's lots of growth, there's flower blossom on many of them at this stage, uh, and that's all essential food for birds and for insects, all sorts of things. So, um, you know, unless it's absolutely necessary, we'd, we'd urge people to leave them alone. Now, giving them a hand, which uh, we talk about uh, at this time of the year when you're on with us, I'm talking about nest box in particular. Uh, need to get those up as soon as possible. Yeah, this is exactly the time of year when we urge people to have nest, nest boxes up by. So mid mid February is really when, when you're looking at it because this is when the birds use the nest boxes, particularly birds like blue tits and great tits and these other common garden birds that many people will be familiar with. Even though they may not actually start building their nests, April, this is the time of year when they decide where they're going to nest. So you may see pairs of these birds prospecting around your garden and around the local area looking for suitable places to nest. And if they find a nice convenient box, what they will do is they will then earmark that, they will start to defend this, the, the box and your garden as part of the territory, and then in a few weeks' time they'll start their courtship behaviour and start building a nest. So now it's the time of year to get everything up there. No, I, I, I can't remember, but I, I know I asked you this question in the past. Uh, as regards the entry and exit hole of the nest box, what's the ideal direction to face it in? And is there a direction on the compass you shouldn't face it in? Well, in, in Ireland, it tends not to matter hugely. What you want to have it is you want to have it uh, shaded, if possible, and out of the direction of the prevailing wind. A lot of people are worried that if you have it a certain direction that the sun will shine off and make it very hot. That, that can happen, but if it's in a shaded location, semi sort of semi secluded, as, as a good next nest box should be anyway, um, that's not so much of an issue. Really, you want to try and stop the driving wind and rain as much as possible from from blowing into the hole, and um, because that can, especially on on um, in the evenings and at nights, that can really cause the chicks or the eggs to chill, mm. uh, and that's really the big killer for them in the nest boxes. So don't don't worry too much about uh, the the location. Really, you want to have it as high up off the ground as you conceivably can within reason, obviously, you're not going to get to the top of the tree or anything like that, but a few metres off the ground, if at all possible, and directed away from the prevailing wind and sort of semi-secluded and sheltered if you can. That's a good advice there. Now, people are, love the uh, the feeding aspect of the birds, attracting them to the back garden. And can you lay off the feeding now or should you, should you keep it going? Well, it, certainly you'll find over the coming weeks that the birds probably use that food less and less. However, we still are, you know, we're not out of the woods yet. Um, very often the coldest days of the year in Ireland come in late February or in March. Uh, so we always think the winter is behind us, but actually we can get by very bad weather. And that's when the birds really do need that food in the garden. So I certainly would keep it up. But if you do have nest boxes around, I would keep the nest boxes and the food separate. You want to have the feeding stations, the bird table, the hanging feeders or whatever, as far as possible away from the nest boxes. Because uh, what happens is, you know, a bird like, like a pair like of blutus, for example, they will choose that nest box. And then if they see lots of other species coming and going in front of the nest, they may feel threatened. They feel mm. like their territory is being invaded. So it's best to keep the two separate. And so be judged judge by the birds. You know, you can feed all year round if you want to, um, but the fact of it is you'll find as you get into the spring and then definitely into the summer, the birds' demand for the food is much lower. and mm. tends to peak again then as you get towards sort of the late autumn time.
So, uh, again, uh, they'll go their own ways, as you're saying there, and they'll, they'll rely less on it. I, we got a message recently from one of your colleagues about the hen harrier and the difficulty that the hen harrier species is in. Why is this, Nile? Why the decline? What's the reason and what can be done? It really is very stark. The National Parks and Wildlife Service just recently published its, its latest report into uh, the, the status of hen harrier in Ireland following extensive survey work in, in which Burgot Ireland was involved. What we've seen is there's been, a, it just in, so, since the last survey in 2015, there's been a decrease of almost a third. We're down to perhaps as few as 85 pairs of hen harriers, these, these wonderful large birds of prey. They're such a, a symbol of, of our uplands and our boglands. Um, and a big part of the reason for the, for the disappearance of this bird is, is, is changes in their landscape. It's uh, it's especially things like afforestation in upland areas, so Sitka spruce plantations going into areas where there should be no trees. Uh, Ireland needs a lot more trees. There's no question about that. We we, we really lag behind other European countries when it comes to tree cover. They're so important from an environmental and uh, sustainability point of view. But what we really need is the right kind of trees in the right places and we need to stop seeing our boglands and our upland areas as being wasteland that's good for nothing. They're amazing at uh, carbon storage but they're also amazing for so much wildlife. We need native trees in, in, in lowland areas that's what we need, not thick as trees plantations in upland areas that are ideal habitat for other birds and which are already doing so much to combat climate change by soaking up a lot more carbon than a spruce plantation ever will. Uh, the, the big reason, I suppose, why it's affected hen harriers in particular is that they need a very large area of, of open habitat to hunt and especially to nest in. Mm-hmm. And when you have um, disturbance um, through forest activity, through uh, wind farm and other road construction and so on, this does disturb them. But it also gives an opportunity for predators to, to sneak up on them and work out where their nests are because hen harriers nest on the ground. And if you have a big expanse of moorland or bog, um, you know, it's um, featureless to the human eye, at least, for, for, for many kilometres, it's very, very difficult for a predator like, like a fox to be able to creep up or even view where the nest would be. But if you intersperse this with, with, uh, with conifer plantations, it's a place for these animals to hide and for them to perch in trees and to watch and observe where these, where these nests are. And it makes it much easier for them to find. But also, the sheer per- the trees just being there in the first place breaks up the habitat and makes it unsuitable for hen harriers. And also other birds like curlew, you know, it's no, it's no um, uh, coincidence that it's actually so many of our upland and our bogland birds that are really struggling now. Mm. So restoration of habitat and there's a, 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 quite a bit of lobbying going on of, of uh, government, etc. at the moment. And I uh, wish you well with that one. Angela's just to have to send us in a beautiful picture here, Niall, taken from her, her kitchen sink area. And you see the blue tits going in and out of the nest box there already. So they're right. sussing out that site there. Absolutely, that's exactly what they're doing. You see them going in and out of the nest box. They're trying them on for size, essentially. And I say the fact that they're going in there, there's a very good chance now in the coming months they will, they will nest in there. Uh, and hopefully get to see, like, yeah, the little the little babies leaving usually around early May and making their way in the world. It's always one of my favourite things to see. And two things uh, just before we finish on on the nest boxes. What other creature besides blue tits will, will use the nesting boxes? So it really depends on the design of the nest box. So, so the, the, the classic nest box with a little hole in the front of it, the blue tits, the great tits, another bird called the coal tit, they, they will happily use those. A slightly smaller design with a smaller hole, uh, they're very good for wrens if they're quite secluded. And then you have um, another style of box completely that has more an open front rather than just a hole in it. So there's a shelf and a ledge in the front of it. Uh, and the smaller ones of those are very good for robins and for wagtails. The larger ones, you get blackbirds using them. 
another bird called spotted flycatcher may also use them as well. Um, the thing is that actually the, the majority of our garden birds won't use nest boxes. So all the finches, the chaffinches, the goldfinches and so on, they won't use nest boxes at all. They build a sort of a, a woven basket nest up in a tree or in a bush or in a hedge. Um, but um, there's also some specialist ones you can get. There's a bird called a tree creeper, a little mouse-like bird that creeps up tree trunks. They use nest boxes, but it has to be a very specific design. It's almost like a triangular-shaped wedge with a little entrance hole at the side of it. Mm. And uh, they'll use that as sort of mimic the flap on the bark. But if people are interested, they can find all sorts of details of nest box plans uh, at birdwatcherland.ie. And we have a, a big range for sale in our shop, too. And when you buy from us, of course, all the, you help with the birds twice because they get the nest box for the feeders, but also all the, the proceeds of sales are to support our work as a conservation charity. Yeah, and uh, I encourage uh, listeners today to join. I'm a member myself of Birdwatch Ireland and they need your support. They do fantastic work, but there is a great section there on the the nesting uh, boxes too. Niall, you're so good. Thank you for joining us again on the show. We'll be in touch. Thank you very much indeed. A great pleasure. Thank you. Take care. That's uh, Niall Hatch there from Birdwatch Ireland as the birds begin to sing in the mornings. And uh, they are looking for their nest sites are at the moment. I, I see them myself. They're active. I actually have a couple of them uh, boxes at home in the shed myself. And I must get, uh, get them out and get them up ASAP this weekend or it'll be too late. And hopefully we'll have little visitors to entertain us around the garden uh, during the spring and summertime as they rear their chicks. Of course, I have my starlings. Uh, they're back. Well, they spend, I don't know where they go in the winter, but they'll be in and out, of course, from the fascia. But I will have my usual starlings nesting over the back door and the fascia and creating a bit of a racket and other sorts of things for a, a few weeks but it's lovely to observe them going in and out and the work they do feeding the young ones as well there's nothing nicer than having our native bird life in your garden they're so entertaining they really really are late lunch LMFM radio still to come on the show this afternoon we are meeting compulsive gambler Pat Sheedy and Tara Walker after three brings us the first in our series of soups we're calling it Soupy Loopy on late lunch Michael Sembello and Maniac and your late lunch this Thursday afternoon. I'm sure you danced to that one, did you, Louise? Do you remember that one? When it was out in a big, big hit, do you? Yes. Do you? Yeah, it was. I think it was out previously, wasn't it? And then the DJ came and just revamped it. Am mm. I right? Yeah, there's some story with it. You're right there. There was. There's a story to it for sure. Yeah. Um... I'd say it's still a big hit now. Oh, yeah. I'd say if you stuck that on, the would be hopping and bopping on the floor. Look at Kevin's uh, video he sent in to us there from King Court, King's Court. Mm. King's Court, even. Um, isn't it? Mm. The amount of birds he's attracted there yeah, to with the feeders. And, and, oh. and everything. It looks like a little mini, like a Euro Disney for birds. Yeah, yeah. It's an aviary. You know, mm. that's where it's like a, an outdoor aviary. But Kevin, well done to you. I'm sure you get great joy from watching the different species coming there and feeding. It's fantastic. It, it really, really is. Um, what you would call it? Uh, we'll go to that one there in a minute. But first, can I read this, this out for you, Louise? Are you ready? Yep. Have you got your tickets ready out there? One, five, ten, fifteen. They're very symmetrical numbers, aren't they? One, five, ten, fifteen, mm. forty-four and forty-seven. And the bonus number was forty-five. If you have that ticket, you are now three million five hundred twenty-three thousand and twenty-one euro richer. And you bought that ticket... In County Louth. Mm. I wonder who has it. 
We'll know tomorrow whereabouts. They're going to release where it was sold, was it? Yeah. So I take it it's not an online play. It was sold in a shop somewhere in Louth. Mm, I presume so. Yeah. Aren't they, but aren't they very symmetrical numbers? You know, mm. 1, 5, 10, 15. You know, the mm. first four numbers and then 44, 47. Uh, you and don't even need, 45. Kind yeah, of which is yeah. the bonus as well. What a win. Isn't that I, I I wish you all the luck in the world. I hope you have health and happiness to enjoy it and you spend it and enjoy that amount of money. What would you do? What would you do? Say say it was your ticket. Well, you wouldn't be here today. I'd be on my own anyway. That's the first thing. Uh, or maybe I wouldn't. Maybe she'd come in and show me the ticket. Would you? Would you give me a look at the ticket if you had a t- if you had? That I'd ticket? send you a screenshot from the Bahamas. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, so, yeah. You were saying to me, like, and I can't answer it. I don't know how to answer the question you put to me just before we came back on there. Louise said to me, okay, say you won that mm. 3.5 million there and you had that, that much money. What would you do that would be considered mad? That that yeah. song would Not refer just to like maniac? A house or a boat or a, <laughs> just something that you go, I had to have it that I'll do this. I haven't a clue. Have you thought about that? What would you do? <laughs> Well, Go sens- on. sensibly I buy a yacht because you probably need it one with all this rain <laughs> and nonsense. I, do you know what I'd love? I'd love a roundabout. You know, uh, like people have outside their houses and have like portable roundabouts. So you never have to reverse again. <laughs> you just keep driving around. You never, you wouldn't have to worry about reverse, reversing. You know, I was on a different plane altogether. I was thinking about dun, 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 oh, yeah, magic yeah. roundabout. I'm no, I'm on about one of those ones no, that you just drive around. You want a portable roundabout that you throw outside your gate and... <laughs> you just never have to worry about reversing. Oh, my God. The things just that go through that woman's head, I'd I don't say, know. You know three, I'd say you could nearly afford probably a duet with uh, Kylie and uh, Billy Joel. <laughs> if you, you really want. Do you think they'd charge me? Do you honestly think they charge me? For the privilege of singing. For the privilege of having me sing. Sing the January song. I don't don't think, don't mention that again. (laughs) I don't think, uh, I don't think that I'd have to pay them. But look, you wouldn't get much of a yacht, by the way, for 3.5 million. Check out the prices there. Oh, wow. They just go through the roof altogether. But wouldn't it be today just something else to Mm. have that ticket and realise that your money worries were over forever? You know, wouldn't it just be Yeah, you'd be able to go out for dinner for at least a week. Ah, for sure, yeah. And might be able to get a room there. Paddy was on earlier, yeah. 300 quid for a room for a night. You'd be able to book that for sure. Oh, it's a huge amount of money, though. It is huge. And, you know, you could do a lot with that for sure. I wonder if you banked that, you know, and just lived off the interest. I wonder what the interest would be. National instalment savings, 10% for 10 years. So if you put that 3.5 million in for 10 years, you'd get 350,000. No, but you know the way if it's in a bank, don't they, doesn't it earn interest every day, No. No. Do you used to? Banks pay you nothing. The oh. interest rates for money on deposit in banks is putrid. It's tiny, Louise. Do you never be listening to Mr. John Lowe? I do, but I just thought with the lotto that everything was like tax free that you might get yeah, well, be well, enough to live off the money every week. Um, you get a little bit of a, well, in, in, in an Irish yeah. scenario here in Ireland, no, no okay. because they're the stingiest crowd in the world. But there are banks in Europe and that, that would give you an interest rate that you probably could, but... It'd be a pretty high bed if you put it under the mattress. Yeah. 
<laughs> oh yes. No, there's no interest in the bank. So you're joking me. The only one is the is the state savings. That's the only place you. But, but what? Why would you do that? With you look at what would you do? You'd clear your debts. You'd you'd buy a car. You'd buy a second property. You'd b- travel all over the world. I'm sure there's loads. You and you would help your family and friend relatives, not friends. You'd help your <laughs> maybe some friends uh, to you know if they needed a few pound to help them out with this, that, and the other. Clear That's your family's you debts. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to keep it. Although many people have won and they do keep it a secret. Mm -hmm. I know that. Yeah, they keep it very much to themselves. Anyway, good luck to whoever won. 3,523 euro. And 21. 3523021. Yeah, 3,523,021 euro. Lottery millionaire. Tickets sold in loud. We'll know where it was sold tomorrow. The numbers are 1, 5, 10, 15, 44 and 47. The bonus number 45. Anyway, a man who knows a lot about making big money, losing it and gambling it and doing jail time because of it is joining me next. Yes, his new book is called 100 to 1. Pat Sheedy's coming your way on Late Lunch. The cover of the book says 100 convictions, 1 million euro, the devastating true story of a compulsive gambler and the man who's written his story of squandering that amount of money. Remarkable is with me on the line. The book is called 100 to 1. Pat Sheedy, welcome to the show. Thanks very much, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you for joining me uh, this afternoon. I've had the book a while, and when I read it, you know what struck me? Um, Did you never learn your lesson? You had one, two, and then maybe a third opportunity, and yet on you went. Was it just impossible? It's addiction, Jerry. It's Mm. what addiction does to you. Mm. It owns you, it controls you. Um, It's a very, very, very difficult thing to overcome, no matter what type of addiction it is. Because for a lot of people, Pat, you know, even that first time when you, in your early 20s, you stole that cheque from the neighbour and then you were hired to raise money for a housing body, you pocketed money and really you were facing real difficulty in your life then. That didn't stop it. That, that, that wasn't enough to say, I've got I to leave this be. No, and again, I stress that's what addiction does to you. I mean, that, that, that's addictive behaviour. I mean, it's what it did to me. It's the way it made me react. It's 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 how I coped. It's how I uh, how I ran my life with under the control of my addiction. And and yes, yeah, it it must have done something because you know at that stage you were lucky not to see prison at that uh, time in your life. You got community service, I know as well, and a suspended sentence. You know, but at the end of the day, you did manage to leave it aside for what was more than ten years or so at that stage before. Uh, you know, you were on your way again. What happened? How were you able to leave it for that amount of time? And then up we go again, away we go. I went to treatment in 1991. I got a lot from the treatment. I did a a 30-day residential treatment in the treatment centre in Ennis, in County Clare. And I stuck religiously to what I learned in there for a long, long time. But again, the addiction that's in you never leaves you. It's just how you manage it on a daily basis. And I got to a point where I didn't manage it anymore because of arrogance and complacency. And I thought that I was better than it. I thought that I was bigger than it. And I thought I could control it when really I couldn't. And I went back to my old ways. And like you were doing really well, I have to say, Pat. You had a wonderful job. You were making good money. Um, You do say, though, that... 
prestige, status, that type of thing. You, you, when you look back on it now, you felt that underpinned you wanting more. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, it would have been, and it would have been the root of the addiction as well, and I refer to it at the start of the book. Um, I always suffered with self-esteem issues, and I always wanted to be popular. I always felt I needed to fit in. I, I needed to be the one that made more of an effort than everyone else, and those were issues that I carried with me all my life, and I really only addressed them when I went to prison. So, you know, until I addressed those issues, I was never going to get anywhere, really. And hopefully now I have. You went into a bookies, you say it yourself. After th- I was looking at the time frame, that 13 years it was, actually. Uh, you just walked into a bookies, placed a bet, and away you go again. Probably like an alcoholic taking a drink after a lot of years. Similar uh, parallels there, and you were gone. Now, look at... You did things that were simply awful. You defrauded people. Have you regrets to this day about that? Of course I do. Of course I do. Um, I, I, I think I think about how I live my life every day. You know, it's part of me, and it's going to be part of me for the rest of my life. You know, but I've learned from my mistakes, and I think everyone's entitled to everyone's entitled to address their their behaviour and move on with their lives, and that's what I'm trying to do today. At that stage, just to moving on through your life, again, you got a second warning, if you could call it a wake-up call for a second time, and you you went for more treatment at that stage. And, and again, you didn't do prison. You got another suspended sentence. Correct, yeah. And, and yet still, oh, my God, yeah, you, you, you just couldn't leave it behind. Were you... Were you, were you were you clear for a time at that stage? Did you, did you get a break from it? Did you take a break from, you know, the addiction? Yeah, almost five years. Okay. And, you know, you, you keep saying it's an addiction. Um, of course, when you started, because this all started when you were a, a little fella, you, you tell that story in the book, I bet you put on for your dad, but you moved through the years. And what happens with gambling then, of course, as you know today, uh, you can gamble any hour of the day on anything. I was just fascinated. Here you were, and the online, of course, thing has facilitated this, gambling on uh, basketball in India, croquet, um, virtual racing. Uh, uh, my God, Pat. Yeah. Anything, was it? Anything. Anything, yeah. Anything I thought I could win money on. Yeah. And again, when you, when, you, when you, you know, were back in the online world and how dangerous that is, sure, that must have been like uh, heaven for you to be able to do that. I'm sure you did it all hours of the day and, and night. Yeah, and I don't think I ever would describe it as heaven. Right. It would kind of be the polar opposite, to be honest with you, because life was life was pretty hell for me back then. You know, when I was doing that kind of thing, I was getting no enjoyment out of it. I wasn't living. I had no quality of life. And it's all my own fault. I just want to stress here, I'm not feeling sorry for myself. You know, everything I got and the prison time I served, I deserved. I'm not making any bones about that. But I didn't lead any quality life at all up to the point I went into prison you know so you weren't getting that adrenaline rush from it anymore it was just a question of feeding your addiction in any way possible wherever you could get the money yeah pretty much imagine you sold rugby world cup tickets that didn't exist to people yeah I did that do you ever feel bad? Do you ever come across these people again? Do they ever come across you? You know, the people that you took lots of money from. Have you ever had any engagement with them? 
had engagement with some. Um, I re- I would have repaid an awful lot of people financially that I stole from over the years. There are some people I haven't repaid that I would, you know, I would hope to address in the future. I've made amends as much as I can at this moment in time. Mm. Yes, I do feel bad about it. Of course I do. It caught up with you eventually. You know, after that, I mentioned two, three times you, you courted, you know, uh, going to prison. It didn't happen. But then the day, that fateful day came uh, in October 2020. When you were called into the court that day, I'm, I'm interested, you know, in your demeanour and what you thought. Did you think you were going to dodge it again? No. You knew no, then, knew did I was, you? I knew I was going to prison, yeah. I made it clear at starting where I was going. I brought a bag with me, prepared and ready for it. I, I, I knew that my time was up. You were in prison during the COVID situation we had here in Ireland. That was, couldn't yeah. have been easy either, was it? It must have been horrid, was it? Difficult. It was, yeah. It was extremely difficult, you know. Um, but again, I don't expect anybody to feel sorry for me either. You know I mean, I mean, it is what it is. It was, COVID was a horrific thing for people everywhere, regardless of where you were. Mm. It wasn't pretty in prison either, um, but it wasn't pretty anywhere. So, you know, it was it was tough, but it was no more tough than it was for everybody else who had to deal with it. Were you ever in fear in prison? Did you ever fear from other inmates? Did they know your story, you know theirs, or how did you play it? Did you have to play a game in there to stay safe? No, I, I, I never had any major issues of any type with anybody. Prison is the type of place where if you mind your own business, people leave you alone. Yeah. It's like every walk of life, I guess. If you look for trouble, you'll find it. If you don't, you won't. And I made a conscious decision when I went into prison that I was going to use my time as constructively as I could doing things for myself, which I did. I, you know, I had very little serious interaction with anybody, groups, gangs, anything at all like that. I would have very much done my own thing, mm. I guess. But at the same time, would have interacted with people as well. So I suppose, you know, you do have to play all sides of the fence in there. Yeah. During all this time, what about relationships? You know, your family life, things like that, all fell apart. Put a huge strain on, on, on my family life, on relationships I had, my friendships. Um, yeah, of course it did. Like, I was... I was using people. I, I was, I was bringing bad publicity to people. I was bringing people to my parents' doors that were looking for money. I had my friends having to justify me, and whenever they were out, and they'd meet people who would have bad things to say about me. I had relationships that broke up because they just couldn't handle it, and you know, I don't blame any of, of any of them for that. Again, I, I I can't stress enough that you know this was all because of addiction and. All of my offending, from a criminal point of view, had been related to addiction. Every crime I committed, every stroke I pulled, was, you know, the money literally went straight from their hands over the counter in a bookies. And, you know, that's just the unfortunate way that it was. And of course, uh, you had a real worry in prison because your mam... Uh, had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and um, that, that of course, and she was on your mind. You, you live with her now, do you? I do. Okay, and it's fantastic to have that, I'm sure. But for that, would you be on the road? Would you be out? Would you have anywhere, would you have a roof over your head? Not really something I've given much thought to, 
to be honest with you. Talk to me for a moment about Shauna Gilligan, who you met while in prison. She's had a huge impact on you. Yeah, when when I went into prison first, I got transferred to Port Leash at an early at an early stage of my sentence, and I was morbidly obese, so to 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 a point that I wasn't allowed to work because they were afraid that I'd have an accident, and my mobility was. My mobility was very, very, very poor. So I was left with no other option as to how to pass my time other than to go to the school. I went to the education unit and many years ago in in, in treatment in 2010, an old addiction counsellor there called Pat actually said to me, kind of half in jest, that there was the makings of a good book in me that I'd lived a fascinating life and that I should do it someday. And it was always something that had kind of stayed with me. When I went to the school, I looked at what courses were on offer and there was a creative writing module there uh, with an option of doing a university degree with the OU. So I enrolled in that and the teacher was Shauna. Um, she's published author herself and quite simply a remarkable teacher. And I worked with her for almost two years. Um, in that time, she taught me the basics of of writing, about how to build stories, how to construct, how to edit, everything really. And I just loved it. And I started the book and for a long time I wasn't able to stop writing. I was in school three times a day for hours on end and just writing and writing and writing. And it was incredibly cathartic. But I, you know, I, I couldn't have done it without her. Mm. I couldn't have learned what I learned without her showing me how to do it. And, you know, the, the great thing about it was that never once do you feel like you're a prisoner when you're when you're in school there. Um, you know, she, she treated me like like she would everyone else. And when you're in prison that, that means a lot, you know. That yeah. that really does mean a lot to be to be treated as an equal and to be spoken to as an equal. Mm-hmm. And it just it was just constant encouragement from day one. And it, 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 um, you know, it really, it really changed my my outlook on a lot of things mm. for the better. Yeah, she's had a huge impact on you. You're attending the Gambling Anonymous meetings. Um, you're uh, working with an organisation who's trying to help you find a- employment. But I suppose people are listening today and thinking. Would I give that man a job? You know, <laughs> well, we we wouldn't let him near money anyway. I'm not being too hard on you there, am I? No, you're not. But maybe that's something society needs to look at too, in relation to how they look at ex-offenders and and you know, everybody's entitled to a chance. I believe. Yeah. You know, um, you know, I'm not asking to be put in a position of trust. I wouldn't ask to be. I wouldn't expect to be. And everybody's entitled to. To their opinions, I've helped them develop those opinions by my behaviour over the years. I fully understand that. And I fully understand that this is something that I'll have to carry with me for the rest of my life too. Mm. But what I have done is I've hopefully now carved out opportunities for myself where I will hope to work for myself going forward and to work in areas that would be extremely different from areas I worked in before, you know, in relation to to, to what I do. Um, It would be closer to my lived experience in prison. And, you know, that's, that's the way I hope to go in, mm. in the future. You know, you, we spoke about the number of times you, you went into remission, if I could call it, from the gambling edition. And now, 
Do you believe this is it? You, you'll never go back. You'll never gamble again. No, I won't say that. Because um, I said it before twice and it came back to bite me twice. And each time it came back to bite me, it bit me a lot worse than it did the previous time. And any addict that knows their addiction will tell you that they can never say never because it's literally around the corner for every alcoholic, every drug addict, every compulsive gambler, every addict of every kind live on a day-to-day basis. And anybody that tells you that they're in control of it or can beat it, they're deluded because it's just not possible. You just learn how to manage it. You learn how to manage your life on a day-to-day basis. And that's sadly the way it is. That's the way it has to be for me. You know? So I'll never say never again. But I'll do my best every morning I wake up to make sure I don't go back down those roads. I, I, I hope you never do. I really do. I, I have to congratulate you on the book because it's such an honest account of you and what you went through and you tell it so well um, that Lady Sean has done a brilliant job with you um, and it's a fascinating read may I say Pat 100 to, 100 to 1 it's called 100 to 1 by Pat Sheedy and you've done a service I'd say for many many people and of course uh, the gambling regulation bill is on the way as well and that's a, another area entirely but I, uh, hopefully that will be a big help uh, when it comes to uh, the yeah. addiction uh, to gambling listen thank you for joining me on the show today congratulations on the book and all the very best for the future Thanks very much, Jerry. Thank you. Take care of yourself. Bye-bye. That's Pat Sheedy there. GA stands for Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, I was chatting there before. Three. Uh, very interesting man to Pat Sheedy. The story of a compulsive gambler. The book is called 100 to 1. And I'm going to pop a copy in the post to Ray Duggan today. Well done to you. And thanks to everybody. Got lots of messages there on that one. It is a real, honest, no holds barred account of the difficulty of the problem that is uh, addiction gambling. Uh, I had another message there just uh, on foot of my chat with Bobby McCormick, top of the show about uh, the D Hotel no longer being a hotel. Interesting point from Pat. Should all of these hotels not require a change of a planning certificate? Uh, they got planning for a hotel, not uh, a place to host refugees. Everybody else needs to go through planning for changes they need to make. Uh, does this not have to happen here? Thanks indeed. Point well made, Pat. Thank you indeed for getting in touch with us on the show. Now, let's do this in Late Lunch. The Late Lunch Artist of the Week. Artist of the Week. My Artist of the Week all this week is Mr Bob Marley. The new movie about him is out in Ireland tomorrow. Anyway, on a personal level, Bob was a Rastafarian. Uh, for the greater part of his life, uh, he supported the legalisation of cannabis, which he used and saw him run into the uh, law from time to time. Ironically, he was Catholic growing up until he converted to Rasta when he was 21 and then uh, roll on to the latter part of his relatively short life. In 1980, he was baptised into the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. Bob and his wife Rita have three children. Rita has two from a previous relationship who Bob adopted and uh, they took on actually the Marley name. However, outside of those five, Bob fathered at least another six children, if not more. Yes, he confirms 11, but but there are more who claim Bob is their dad. Some man for one man. Well, today's song was only released, go to the music now, after Bob's death 
uh, on the album uh, Confrontation. That was released after Bob Marley died and it came out in 1983. Its title of the song I'm playing for you today, it refers the title to black troops in the US Army, a term used by Native Americans. Yes, it's Mr. Bob Marley and Buffalo Soldier. Yes, Bob Marley and Buffalo Soldier, my artist of the week on your late lunch this Thursday afternoon. Final break of the day and on the way we start a new four-part series with Tara Walker. We're going soupy loopy. Back with Tara Walker, spring 2024. We're going soupy loopy for the next few weeks. (laughs) I don't know how you're feeling, Jerry, but I have been feeling very miserable in this weather. It's cold, it's grey, it's raining a lot and I think if you just have a lovely warming hearty soup at lunchtime it just cheers up the day and warms the cockles a little bit doesn't it it certainly does so we're starting the series today with a homemade vegetable soup yeah well i thought look we've got four lovely soups coming up in the series we've our sort of like a farmhouse traditional vegetable soup today then we have a lovely seasonal mushroom soup and then we're moving on to a pea chili lemongrass soup and a broccoli and blue cheese soup so i'm starting out with the kind of basics and then we'll work up to something a little bit different but to start with the vegetable soup i have just some rapeseed oil going into my pan here so the rapeseed oil is for the high burning point and then a little knob of butter going in there for the flavor as well and then when it starts to foam we're going to add our onions in the secret to a good vegetable soup is making sure you give the time to sweating off the vegetables it takes about 20 minutes people underestimate that and then they have a vegetable soup that just is kind of bland so this is the key to it so in with my onions now my butter's foaming my onions are going in and I'm going to give those a couple of minutes before I start to add my other vegetables in because you need to have the onions really kind of sweetened and caramelised and a little pinch of salt, as always, to stop them from catching and burning. So we'll pop the lid on there and we'll come back to it in a moment. You know, the uh, smell of onions is just the quintessential smell of the kitchen. You can't beat them. They're, they're such, a, such a base for so many things, an onion, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, I think I'm actually starting all of the soups in this series with a base of onions because, again, like when you think about a soup, like it's a load of liquid and it's a load of vegetables. So you really need to build up that flavour and really the onions are what give it. Now, while we're on the subject of soups in general and the first of our four features on soups with you, can I ask you about stock? Because it's always a thing that I question myself when I'm making soup and I love a homemade soup myself, especially if I've a chicken carcass left over. I never let it go to waste. But without a stock cube, and I use the callow organic stock cubes, it's very hard to get a flavour. Yeah, well, I think, you know, it's definitely important to use a good quality stock cube. Look, we can't all have homemade stock all the time. And especially if you want to whip up something and it's a particularly cold day, you think I need something. So I think I love callow as well. I love the marigold vegetable bouillon. Uh, make sure you don't dilute the stock cube too much as well and too much water. Like if you're going to use a large quantity of water, use two stock cubes, you know. I'd also say going back to the point I've already made about the caramelization. Like if I'm going to make a soup, I will get the onions on first thing and then I'll go and look for my other bits and bobs just to make sure I get that flavour and unfortunately people think oh I want to have a quick soup but actually for something like a vegetable soup it takes at least half an hour to make you know it's not a quick one. 
There you go. So we leave those onions sweating away there and come back to them in a few moments. So we're back to the onions. Oh, they look, they've nearly turned a golden colour in there, haven't, haven't they? they? They're just lovely. And you can smell in the air that mm. lovely, lovely smell. So I'm going to add the rest of my vegetables in. So we have carrot, leek, celery, your kind of trifecta, your little mirepoix and um, your classic sofrito base. And I have a potato going in as well. And that'll just thicken the soup up a little bit. And then I have some thyme from the garden. I'm just going to pop that in. You could use dried mixed herbs either, Jerry. You know, it's in this situation, it's not really going to make a huge difference. But since I have it growing in the garden, I might as well use the fresh. So that's everything in. The thyme is in. And again, now lid on for a good kind of 10, 15 minutes again to build up that flavour. Okay, so back to our vegetables in the pot here. And they've been on a while. How long have they been in there now? They've been now? on at least, what, 20 minutes mm. now. We've been chatting away, yeah. having coffee or whatever. So look, they've really softened down. You can see there's little touches of golden caramelization on the outside of the veg, which is what you really want. And see at the bottom of the pot, there's a little bit of stickiness there. So we really want that. And now we're going to go with our stocking. And as always, I always say this, make sure you don't put all of the stock in the recipe into your soup because some potatoes and carrots absorb, need more stock to and liquid to cook them than others, you know. So just make sure you go with about two thirds of the recipe because, you know, you can always add more stock in afterwards, whereas if you've over diluted and you've lost all your flavour, it's very hard to come back from that. So we're going to let that simmer now for about five minutes and then we'll blitz up. The weapon is out again. Yes. The blitzer is on the way. <laughs> so the soup is ready to blitz up now. So the vegetables have been simmering for about, what, five or six minutes there. But again, the work has been done already with the caramelisation. So it's been on for like at least half an hour in total. But it was really sweating down. That's so important. And now I'm just going to blitz up. And this is your classic, classic farmhouse vegetable soup, traditional veg soup. Anyway, this is going to be a lovely, smooth vegetable soup today that we'll be tasting very, very shortly indeed. And as always, Jerry, just want to taste now before we serve up, because if we find it is in any way bland, we season it up and we put it back on to cook for a couple of minutes and reduce down if it needs to have a little bit of extra flavour. So let's have a taste. I'm happy with that actually I'm going to add a little bit of white pepper and I love white pepper in things like this it's kind of more traditional old-fashioned and a little pinch of salt just it only had a very small amount of salt at the beginning when I was sweating off the onions I just put a pinch of salt in to stop them from catching and burning and now let me plate up serve up a bowl for you I have left a couple of little chunks of the carrot mm. there and I kind of like a little bit of bite to it. It's not completely sort of, you know, like a baby food puree or something. And a little dollop of cream. Well, dollop, a little dash of cream. And some flat leaf parsley from the garden. You can use curly either. Curly probably would be more traditional in this type of an old fashioned soup. So just pop a little bit of cream on. And if you pour it onto your spoon, you see you can just get a nice little arrangement with it and I got some parsley from the garden when I was getting the thyme just chopping it down and I think that gives a lovely freshness like I do find it's important to have the parsley in a soup like this because everything's quite you know it's quite rich and pureed and it's nice to have a fresh little touch on the top of it there it looks great. beautiful as well I have to say with the little dash of cream on top and the, the herb there as well so let's have a taste of this one too me being the biggest soup fan in the world. Mmm. Mmm. 
all the cream and the herb as well there just is that little finishing touch there is so special as well it's absolutely beautiful may i say it's just what the doctor ordered for this time of the year as well you're a genius well done first in our series of soupy loopy <laughs> i have to say i started with that one because it really makes me nostalgic um it's definitely the soup of my childhood and i remember very happy times when like this time of year you might get snowed in and my mother would make that soup and maybe some some brown scones to go along with it and you'd be out doing snowballs and building snowmen come into that so gorgeous warming and hearty ah that's a lovely memory it really is thank you we're away with the uh, series on soups with tara walker soupy loopy on late lunch and remind them about you where they can find out more so i have a website tarawalker.ie there are some recipes on the blog there but i also have my cooking club up live now so you can join the cooking club it's 9.99 per month and for that you get lots and lots of recipes all categorized into different i have a soup um section but i also have things like quick and easy meals um for busy nights i have midweek meals i have brunches and i have a sunday roast section so that gives you step-by-step instruction for your sunday roasts and then of course i have really easy things like leftovers and dips and stuff like that so for that you also get one online cooking class per month a live online cooking class and you're getting all of the recipes so that's on tarawalker.ie fantastic can't wait to next week mushrooms is it we've got mushroom soup next week my favorite actually i do love this one but mushroom soup is probably my all-time favorite what about you jerry oh i absolutely adore it can't wait anyway do join us next week for the second part of soupy loopy with tara walker until then tara thanks a million thanks a million jerry good to see you as always mushroom soup mushroom soup oh you can't beat it you can't that's next week at this time on Late Lunch, second part of the series. And a big thank you to Tara. And do check out the recipes uh, on Tara Walker's website there. They're there. The recipe for that uh, vegetable soup is there right now. That's it on Late Lunch uh, this uh, Thursday afternoon. Paul McKenna's on his way with the drive here on LMFM Radio. Thank you for your company all afternoon. And we'll be back tomorrow, Friday, to bring you the uh, last show of this week in February. The week of love, Valentine's Week. Anyway, have a nice evening. See you tomorrow, 1.30.